funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, Newark Mayor Roz Baranca sits down for his first TV interview since declaring his run for governor, saying the issues impacting his city's residents are felt across the state. We fly in a storm in Newark every single day. I've been in a storm and turbulence is what I wake up to, what I go to sleep to. So at the end of the day, these issues that we're fighting in Newark are state issues. Plus, the cost to live in New Jersey takes center stage at the State House today as some lawmakers call for the reinstatement of the corporate business tax. This is not a penalty on business. It is asking those who make more to pay more. Also, New Jersey celebrates a three-year high from legalizing cannabis sales, but the industry is still growing. We do not consider a state fully legal without home cultivation rights, and we are severely lacking and behind other states in this area. And restoring black history, Bergen County champions the preservation of a historical African-American burial ground. This is not just a cemetery where people are buried. This is a cemetery that is telling us a lot about our history here in Bergen County. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Thursday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. New Jersey will never be the same, according to Newark Mayor Roz Baraka, because he's seeking to be the state's next governor. The mayor of New Jersey's largest city this week said despite a crowded field for the 2025 gubernatorial election, his entrance to the race will leave an impression, in part because of his legacy as an unabashed progressive who's led Newark through a decade of resurgence, affirming to both his critics and supporters that he could do the job as an outsider. Baraka made the unexpected announcement on Monday in front of an electrified audience during a Black History Month event in Trenton. He joins at least two other high-profile Democrats in the primary race and sat down with me earlier today for his first TV interview since announcing the campaign. Mr. Mayor, welcome. Uh, really happy to have this opportunity with you. I have to ask off the bat, did you surprise even yourself with the announcement on Monday? Because I saw Bonnie Watson Coleman come up on that stage and smack you in the shoulder like, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wasn't sure if I was going to do that. I don't, I, nobody else knew that, you know. Uh, but there of, were rumblings yeah. for a long time that oh, you were thinking about this. Absolutely, a lot what of rumblings. What was it about that A moment? lot of folks. I mean, it was a lot of excitement. I, I know it was a lot of anticipation. People came down there. You know, I prayed on it. You know, I, uh, you know, speech was was riveting. I was in it, you know, and then it just came out because uh, that's what's in my heart. I mean, you know, that's what I feel. So it came out to a warm reception. To a surprisingly overexcited reception. Yeah. Well, why surprising? Yeah, you know, I thought you know the folks in the room would uh, be supportive of the idea, but uh, I just didn't know to what extent, you know. And uh, a lot of people seemed, you know, excited that this was happening. In the days since, we've got a little hint through some other interviews you've done about yeah. what a Baraka administration would champion. It's things like bringing back 
the CBT, uh, the, the corporate business tax right. surcharge, affordable housing, right. desegregating schools, right. baby bonds. That's right. um, these are a lot of social programs that I right. think when people see them, whether they're on board or not, also see dollar signs. Of course. How of course. would you go about them without raising taxes, which as you say is a big issue, if not one of the biggest issues right. for average families. Well, I think the tax problem in New Jersey is that it's uneven. I don't think everybody's paying their fair share. Uh, that we have to begin thinking about getting the richest New Jerseyans to pay their fair share, whether it's mansion tax or estate tax, beginning to figure out what that looks like uh, to help us fund transportation, to help us fund affordable housing, all of those things that are necessary uh, to get rid of the loopholes that allow companies and corporations to take their profits to other states. We have to bring the profits back here to New Jersey. Uh, you live here, we in, uh, you know, shoulder the responsibility of your family, of everything you have here. We give you everything we have, and we ought to get something in return. These are issues that you're working on within the city of Newark? Absolutely. You I see mean, them translating to a statewide level? Well, everything that we fight for in Newark are state issues, whether it's affordable housing, uh, reducing violence and crime in our city, uh, reducing the cost of living, making it uh, easier for people to live in Newark, to live in New Jersey. All of those things are important. I think housing is the number one issue across the state of New Jersey. Making kids get, make sure kids get a decent education. These are things all New Jerseyans uh, want uh, for their families. I'm thinking back to 2015, covering Phil Murphy on the campaign trail, a very ultra, unabashed, progressive Phil Murphy, who right. then, in the years since, has had to walk back yeah. some of that to work with the moderate wing of the party. Are you going to be willing to compromise on some of this in order to get it done, which tends to be the key word once you get to Trenton? Well, I know how to collaborate, let me say that. I mean, I think most of the things we did, in fact, most of the things we've done in Newark that we were successful at has been about collaboration. I mean, people didn't think uh, the business district would be this booming, you know, when a mayor comes in, you know, with my background, activism, school teacher, principal. A radical mayor, as yeah, you were yeah, called. That's right, and uh, we actually had the reverse. So uh, I look forward to working with all of the people in Trenton and around the state that want to do the right thing, but I'm not going to walk moderately or slow. I think that's the problem with New Jersey is we've had this slow, moderate pace towards progressive, uh, progressiveness. And at the end of the day, what has happened is we've walked so slow that it's almost not moving at all. It's not working in your eyes. Right. But, but how do you do it when you've got a, a state like New Jersey where we do have a lot of moderate voters? You have to put your shoulders in it, right? And, and, and uh, be able to convince people why this is necessary. Uh, you have to be able to talk to residents and talk to people about and sell what it is that you're doing the same way you did when you were running for office. You have to sell these ideas while you're in office and market them. And, and, and you'll be surprised. I don't think New Jerseyans are as moderate as people want them to be, right? I think when New Jer the, the real issue is people want to be able to live in this city. They want in this state. They want to be able to afford it. Uh, they want to be able to send their kids to decent schools. Uh, that we have great services in New Jersey, but everybody's not paying for them fairly. When that's laid out to people and they begin to understand that some people are paying more than others, how do we even that out, right? How do we lower people's taxes? How do we give people, lower people's housing? Why it's necessary to build more housing and build more affordable housing. That just not, doesn't help people who need affordable housing. It also helps other folks who are middle income folks or middle class folks in the, in the state of New Jersey uh, because it reduces or lowers or stabilizes the, the rents uh, and the mortgages when you build more housing. What's the difference between a progressive Barack administration, and I'll use Steve Fulop because he's okay. the only other who's tatted himself as a progressive who's so far thrown his hat into the Democratic primary, the mayor of the second largest city, Jersey right. City. 
what's the difference there? And are you concerned that this is going to become a very crowded field um, with uh, some ideals that seem to be on the same page? Well, we, we should have ideals on the same, uh, that are close, uh, because we're all Democrats. Uh, and we should be believing basically the same things. We should have a big tent, a blanket that warms everybody. Uh, we should be progressive on immigrants' rights, union rights, making sure that we build an affordable housing, uh, alternatives to violence and crime in our community. All these things should be things Democrats are talking about, right? The, the difference is we have a record in challenging and facing these problems head on. When you get on a plane, if the pilot comes to you and says, this is my first flight, you might be a little scared, especially because you think turbulence is coming, because turbulence is going to come. We fly in a storm in Newark every single day. I've been in a storm, and turbulence is what I wake up to, what I go to sleep to. So at the end of the day, these issues that we're fighting in Newark are state issues, and we have experience in not only facing them, but facing them down. Newark Mayor Roz Baraka, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Ahead of the governor's annual budget address next week, progressive groups are once again pushing the administration to deliver on affordability promises. The way they see it, a recently expired corporate business tax, or CBT, could do the trick. It generates about a billion dollars a year, and activists have been arguing for months the money could be used to plug budget holes. But Governor Murphy isn't budging, and business industry leaders point to data showing New Jersey had the fourth highest CBT in the nation telling senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan the real solution is to rein in spending. People over profits! Progressives are ramping up political pressure as Trenton lawmakers confront building the next state budget. They face lagging tax revenues, expiring pandemic aid, and built-in deficits, constraints that could throttle spending on programs these groups consider crucial for low- and moderate-income New Jerseyans to survive. Let's not unlearn that lesson and go back to an austerity budget that means cuts and flat funding uh, when families need help the most. Is it fair that we have to look at service cuts throughout our state and local governments as a way to make ends meet? No, I don't think that's fair at all. This coalition called for the many says it's a matter of equity. They want lawmakers to raise a billion dollars by restoring the 2.5% surcharge on New Jersey's CBT, or corporate business tax, that expired in December. It impacted corporations making more than a million dollars in annual profits. This is not a penalty on business. It is asking those who make more to pay more. Yeah. That is fair. Yeah. Yeah. That is equitable. That is what we need. Analysts call the upcoming spending plan a transitional budget. NJ Transit's already announced a 15% fare hike with 3% annual increases to follow. Potential revenue raisers under discussion also include boosting New Jersey's sales tax back to 7%. It's sat at 6.625% since 2016. Union leaders claim low-income families are already struggling with inflation. And are now facing the specter of increasing sales taxes and other fees and tolls at a time when they can afford it the least. But one New Jersey business group says don't raise taxes, instead spend some of Jersey's $8 billion plus budget surplus.
It means you don't have to cut an important program or cut an important investment. It means you don't have to increase taxes that will harm taxpayers. The governor is scheduled to deliver his budget message on Tuesday. He's resisted reimposing a surcharge on the corporate business tax. He's also said raising NJ Transit fares is fair. Leading Democrats aren't all aboard with that, though. However, nobody's yet rolled out a concrete plan to save NJ Transit from plunging off a fiscal cliff. Senate President Nick Scutari says he's open to considering a CBT surcharge. Assembly Speaker Craig Coughlin told Chatbox host David Cruz he wants hard revenue figures first. Tax day is April, April 15th. We get the numbers in May, and that gives you the real project. That gives you real numbers about where we're at, and from there you make real projections. So the conversation should be not about what additional taxes we can raise, but what kind of spending can we pare back and reduce. Assembly Republicans say Governor Murphy needs to make drastic spending cuts, starting with the $1.4 billion added at the last moment to this year's record-breaking $55 billion budget. Absolute pork spending that should immediately just be this pulled out before we even start talking about what the budget's going to be. We should be reducing that billion right out of the budget. The next budget will be a heavy lift. In Trenton, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Funding New Jersey's public schools is expected to be a tough topic during the budget season, with state aid cuts looming from changes made more than six years ago to how the state doles out cash to districts. Some lawmakers believe now's the time to revamp the school funding formula, but one legislator has a temporary fix in mind, lift the property tax cap to help districts facing the steepest aid cuts. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. We've seen an increase in class sizes. We've seen an, a, de a decrease in available uh, staff that can push in and support our students. We have less ESL teachers. We have less special education teachers. In fact, the Wildwood School District actually saw 18 staff positions cut last year. These changes, the result of S2, the school funding formula that's been tweaked in recent years, changing the amount of state aid that each district receives. About 20% of the state's school districts have lost millions through the changes. Our district uh, lost $15 million in actual state aid over the course of six years, and, and that would be bad enough. But the issue, the reality of a 2% cap in 6 7% inflation periods of time is just that. It takes a lot more than 2% to operate. That 2% cap is the limit any district can increase property taxes in a given year. It was put in place by Governor Christie. Districts can currently exceed it with voter approval, but a bill introduced by Senator Andrew Zwicker would allow districts that have faced year-over-year -year funding cuts under S2 to increase property taxes beyond the 2% cap without taking it to voters first. If under this S2 reallocation of funding, you lost a certain amount of money, that is the only amount you can go over 2%. That's it. Meaning that if 2% doesn't get you there and 2.2% will, then that's it. You can't go a dollar over that. The Education Law Center is in support of the bill that they say will provide critical funding to districts that are on the brink of crisis. In a lot of cases, um, these districts are not raising the property taxes that the state formula says that they need in order to meet adequacy under the formula. Adequacy, the term associated with what the state believes you should be spending per student. The Senate, the governor, nobody cares about the adequacy number that that actual formula, which they praise, spits out. 
South Brunswick Superintendent Scott Fetter says the 2% cap adjustment would help, but the bigger issue at hand is a reevaluation of the S2 funding formula overall, a move that has consensus from many in the education arena. We believe that the formula structure in general is good. It's one of the best formulas in the nation, but it hasn't been evaluated over 15 years. So we think that the state needs to step up and do a very in-depth review of the formula as required every three years to make sure that the formula is operating at the level that is adequate for students. Senate Education Chair Vin Gopal is creating a working group to address the formula and plans to hold a legislative hearing on the issue in the very near future. We dramatically need to, to revamp it. Uh, mental health costs, special education, transportation, a lot of things have changed for, since when SFRA S2 started in 2008. Last year, Gopal allocated an additional $103 million to help close budget gaps for districts that have faced years of funding cuts. This year, that funding's not coming. It's replaced by this 2% cap adjustment. This year, we're trying to provide some certainty for the next couple of years so that we don't have to go up to the last minute with a budget appropriation. When you do it through an appropriation, it's coming out of state funding, you have to reallocate the funds. When you do it this way, it falls on the taxpayer. There are towns where they have commercial development, they have growth overall, and the amount of money that they need to go over this 2% cap is not that much. So the, there are gonna be some districts where there'll be no impact whatsoever, uh, on the on the homeowner and there'll be somewhere that could be some districts will learn about new rounds of potential cuts in the coming weeks they say this bill gives them one more tool in the toolbox to hopefully stay afloat before cuts are made that'll have a direct impact on students i'm joanna gagas nj spotlight news in the recreational cannabis world, today holds a lot of significance. It marks three years since Governor Murphy signed the bill legalizing adult-use marijuana. A key component to the law was and remains social justice. And today, a number of activists acknowledge the amount of marijuana-related arrests that have been prevented because of the law, but pointed out to Ted Goldberg there are still plenty of inequities within the system. On the third anniversary of Governor Phil Murphy signing the bill that legalized recreational cannabis statewide, activists marched, smoked, and spoke in Trenton about what's next for cannabis. We do not consider a state fully legal without home cultivation rights, and we are severely lacking and behind other states in this area. Most states that legalize cannabis also legalize growing your own plants. New Jersey has not and will enforce heavy penalties if you get caught. Even today, three years later, a registered cannabis medical patient could end up in prison for five years just growing one plant, a plant that three million New Jerseyans voted to legalize. We don't want to see anyone going to prison because of nonviolent cannabis offense. I'm here today to say, don't let patients continue to suffer for the sake of corporate home or for the sake of corporate greed. It's tough to remain hopeful when things look this bad. Activists say they're not asking to grow acres of cannabis at home, just enough to fill a grow tent like this. Some patients say the strains available at commercial dispensaries aren't what they need and can even make their symptoms worse. Having epilepsy and brain damage, I'm very strain specific. Certain strains can actually trigger seizures while other ones can stop them. Right now I can't get my medicine in the dispensaries, but if I were to try to grow a plant at home, I would have five to 10 years in prison potentially. There have been several bills introduced to legalize and regulate homegrown cannabis. 
but they've gone nowhere in the state house. In 2021, legislative leaders dismissed home grow as a non-starter when it should have been recognized as a no-brainer. What makes New Jersey special? Why couldn't New Jersey legalize cannabis, but also include home grow uh, when it was first legalized a few years back? There is no good reason not to do it. Senator Vingo Paul has introduced a bill to legalize homegrown multiple times. I think we should have done this when we did it on day one, just like every other state. I don't get a lot of co-sponsors. You know, there's 120 legislators. Uh, the folks that want homegrown need to reach out to their legislators, ask them to, to sponsor our bills, co-sponsor our bills. And uh, it's, it's had trouble getting support uh, beyond me. Senator Gopal says some of his constituents would prefer to grow their own since it's cheaper and it requires less travel. The purpose of legalizing cannabis is not just so a bunch of corporations from out of state can come in and make money. It was supposed to be for a criminal justice purpose, and I, I don't believe we've gotten there. Uh, it was supposed to be for a health care purpose. Uh, I don't believe we've gotten there. He's also heard the argument that big business is keeping homegrown cannabis from getting off the ground. Homegrow and every state has shown does not have an impact on the on the business market. Uh, businesses will allow to operate to to have someone do four, six, eight, ten plants is going to have no impact there. We've seen in other states it can be regulated. Governor Murphy has said before that he would sign a bill legalizing homegrown cannabis. But there's a lot of cultivating to do before a bill like that lands on his desk. In Trenton, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Turning to Wall Street, stocks powered higher today to snap a three-day losing streak. Here's how the markets closed. And make sure to tune into NJ Business Beat with Raven Santana this weekend. She digs into the cost behind our furry friends. From owning a pet to a critical shortage of vets in South Jersey and the financial challenges to run a shelter. Watch it Saturday morning at 10 on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. Just west of the Hackensack River on a sandy one-acre hill in Little Ferry sits a small African-American burial ground that was neglected and vandalized for so many years, few gravestones and markers remain. But the site, at more than 160 years old, has national historical significance. Among those buried are formerly enslaved persons and two Civil War veterans. The cemetery is now under the care of Bergen County, and this Black History Month, the public is being invited to visit and pay homage to black lives. Melissa Rose Cooper reports. It memorializes life because I look at past generations, we stand on their shoulders. So if we stand on their shoulders, we should protect them, we should recognize them, and we should honor them. A mission historian Dr. Arnold Brown is making sure to achieve here at Gethsemane Cemetery in Little Ferry. The cemetery was created in about 1860, just before the Civil War commenced. And the reason it was created is because African Americans could not be buried in the white cemeteries here in this particular area, Hackensack. So this was created, it's a little larger than a one acre parcel of land, and actually it's a sand hill, because there was nothing but sand all around here that they used to build bricks, okay? So this is the last hill that you can see 
uh, that we have sand here. Brown spearheaded efforts to make the cemetery a historic site and restore the grounds. The cemetery has been vandalized, as you can see. Uh, when we first came here, we saw that there were fire pits where kids would come and have fires and hang out, so to speak. And um, it, was, it was in shambles. And like I indicated before, there were car parks, especially over here. Um, and over here is an automobile place. They just dumped their things in there. Refrigerators and car parks. It, 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 was, it was disgraceful. It was a dishonor to our, our ancestors. All right, you can see how the stones are. Okay, laid over, how they've been vandalized. Now, nearly 20 years later, Bergen County, which owns the cemetery, is inviting the public to learn about its historical significance in honor of Black History Month. This is not just a cemetery where people are buried. This is a cemetery that is telling us a lot about our history here in Bergen County. And I think that is what makes this cemetery the most important thing. And the fact that we still have people alive, um, such as Arnold Brown, Dr. Arnold Brown, that you will hear from, who was important in making this happen. This was a potter's field. It was something, it was an area where people just tended to throw their junk when they didn't want it. And uh, we cleaned it up. We put the fence around it. We do programming. Roughly 500 people are documented as being buried here. Among them are formerly enslaved people, local business owners, and two Civil War veterans. And these panels posted throughout the cemetery will allow visitors to learn more about them. This is hallow ground. This is a ground that we all should honor and protect at all costs and we hope the county who has acquired title of it and has the ability to take care of it uh, so we are satisfied that this cemetery will be preserved for many many years. The self-guided tours at Gethsemane Cemetery will be available Saturday and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. And that's going to do it for us tonight, but make sure you catch Reporters Roundtable tomorrow. David kicks off the show with Assembly Speaker Craig Coughlin with a look at the upcoming budget address and the hard conversations ahead for lawmakers as they work to balance the books. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. Watch Roundtable tomorrow at noon on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For the entire NJ Spotlight News team, thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation.